This week, the hostess guys explain comic book ads. Welcome back to Explain That Hostess Guys. This episode of Explain That Hostess Guys is brought to you by Hostess. Uh, Captain America and the Red Skull. The Cosmic Cube can do anything. Captain America stands in front of the, uh, the, the Washington Monument. I want my part in the bicentennial celebration to be the most patriotic, most fantastic ever. So I must practice. Holy lightning, where are these blasted rays taking me? Red Skull covets the Cosmic Cube. Ah yes, my little fellow. My Cosmic Cube, with your power and my evil brain, we can take over the United States before the Bicentennial Celebration. And then, the world. Of course, it will be a lot easier with Captain America out of the way. Captain America appears in front of the Red Skull. Welcome, Captain America. My Cosmic Cube has just delivered you from Washington to my doorstep. Now we'll see what kind of bicentennial it will be with you as my prisoner. Captain America sneakily reaches into his utility belt and pulls out some Hostess Twinkies. I know how to get that Cosmic Cube on my side. Okay, Cosmic Cube, since you're so super powerful, maybe you'll be super sensitive to delicious Hostess Twinkies. And he kind of waves it around near him. The Cosmic Cube thinks. Delicious golden sponge cake. Red Skull exclaims, Cosmic Cube, I demand you to pulverize Captain America. But the Cube refuses to do anything against Cap because it's enjoying the Twinkies too much. Your Cosmic Cube refuses to obey you because it's enjoying the hostess Twinkies, says Captain America redundantly, who then punches Red Skull in the face. Smooth cream filling to states the Cosmic Cube. Captain America leaves Red Skull's headquarters. And now, back to the important work of the glorious Bicentennial. I'd better stop off for another package of Hostess Twinkies on my way back to the Washington Monument. Red Skull defeated in a downward-facing dog position. <laughs> By George Washington, my cube has gone square. Remember, kids, you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies. And welcome back to Explain That Hostess, guys. This week, we'll be talking about when Hostess partnered with Marvel. So, Darren, why don't you uh, take it away? So, yeah, since uh, you are regular uh, listeners of our podcast, uh, we'll, you know, be completely familiar, of course, with the entire uh, kind of like Hostess comic book run. But I think this episode, we're going to be bringing in a bunch of comic book fans for the first time. So we want to kind of like make sure they're caught up to date. Nerd. So Hostess, right? Hostess as a company uh, has been around since 1919, right? They were founded as a brand from the uh, Continental Baking Company, located in Kansas City, Missouri. And they had a new line of chocolate cupcakes. And so they created the brand name Hostess uh, to sell the cupcakes specifically. Uh, and then as they continued to add more kind of, you know, like baked good dessert, you know, products, basically, uh, they continued to add them under the Hostess line. Uh, Twinkies didn't come along until 1930. 
but they were a smash hit when they came and made the brand into a huge international uh, brand. The other major thing that Continental Baking did besides the Hostess line that everybody remembers is Wonder Bread. They were bought by ITT in 1968, Continental Baking Company kind of went away as a company and were, you know, were subsumed corporately into ITT. And so ITT were actually the owners when the ads were run. Ralston Purina bought Hostess away from ITT in 1984, which is after the era of the uh, the great comic book ads. Eventually, Hostess uh, kind of like famously went bankrupt and closed in 2012. And some of the previous investors then started a new company called Hostess Brands that purchased a lot of the assets from Hostess and started up a new company in 2013 to uh, kind of like return those to the stands. And I think everybody, you know, kind of like pretty much agrees with me at this point that Hostess compared to the stuff that like we grew up with kids, Hostess kind of sucks now. Right. Like Twinkies aren't the same. Yeah. Cup, uh, uh, cupcakes aren't the same. Fruit pies are definitely not the same. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have to kind of like admit that it's, it's kind of sad. Man, those are also, there's so many calories. Right. <laughs> so they're like the worst thing for you. <laughs> I like looked at a fruit pie. I didn't even eat it recently, but I actually like looked at a fruit pie and like they're not even glazed anymore. Yeah. That's, they don't even look right. They're still like 50 sugar or some like insane. I remember I felt my diabetes hurt just looking at them. Yeah. Just, just reading the label. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, right. My diabetes. Right. So famously, what we're here to talk about are the amazing hostess ads that ran in Marvel and DC and Archie Comics and Harvey Comics and Gold Key. Between 1975 until March of 1982, Hostess played, placed a grand total of 352 full-page ads in comics by those five publishers. And in each of them, uh, the ad starred characters from their respective lines. Right. So like the DC and Marvel superheroes appeared in these like, you know, page long comics. And then also, you know, the Archie characters or Bugs Bunny or uh, Richie Rich or whoever, like they, you know, they all had uh, um, one page comic book ads talking about how awesome the product was. They had like the wide range of plot lines that they could use in the comedy comics. Right. Like it's, uh, you couldn't really tell the difference between a typical Richie Rich plot and the kind of plot that Richie Rich would get into in like a hostess ad, right? They were basically the same jokes, but the superhero ones obviously had to be kind of like slightly different. And basically the plot of every superhero hostess comic is that a villain is doing something or some crazy situation is going on in which the superheroes have to use hostess products uh, to distract or confuse or otherwise, uh, you know, like set up the villain for his inevitable defeat. Um, most commonly, these were fruit pies because fruit pies were the most recent new thing from Hostess, right? Like fruit pies had only been introduced in the early 70s and these ads started running in 75. So fruit pies were like the new hotness, basically. But they also would do them with cupcakes or with Twinkies. Uh, DC used some of their supervillains to be the leads as well. Marvel didn't really kind of like trust their supervillains to carry an entire ad by themselves. But DC used several well-known Batman villains since, once again, it wasn't that many years since they had all been on TV, right? Like Catwoman and the Joker and people like that were, were just as much kind of uh, big name characters uh, for DC, certainly more so than most of their second tier superheroes, right? Like the Joker was way more famous than Green Arrow or something like that. 
So the villains would always attempt to, you know, like come up with some sort of like plan or whatever. But of course, they always had to lose, right? Like the villain always fails in the end. The uh, the Joker has several kind of like notable, very funny ones in them. And the Joker is, of course, the only character in all of these comic in all of these ads who does not, in fact, actually like Hostess products. <laughs> Right, like he is, uh, he 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 hates cupcakes and he hates Twinkies and everything. And everybody always comments, like, "How could you possibly hate these things? Wow, you must really be crazy!" <laughs> right? That's like this is the proof that like the, the that the Joker is insane is that he doesn't like Hostess, right? So, so you know, like I said, these were these were spread. They were they were run more or less monthly, um, and some and uh, when it was their schedule, they would do two a month. Uh, to put out for for each line that went out, right? Like if Marvel had Hostess ads this month, and they had most months, like I said, over almost seven years, um, then there would be two ads out there uh, in each month because one of the company policies that they had was that the character starring in the ad would never appear in their own comic. Right, they didn't want to confuse little kids who would be like reading along, and suddenly, like, um, you know, like page twelve of their comic, the story is over because Captain America threw a Twinkie at something. <laughs> right, so like, if you were reading a Captain America comic, that could possibly confuse a little kid. Right, right. So the Captain America ad never appeared in the Captain America comic. Right. So while Captain America was appearing in most of the other heroes' ads, Captain America would have a different one. Uh, so, like I said, so there's always two out every month, right? Captain America's comics would have the Hulk or something in them, right? Like some other uh, other characters. Gold Key did not have all of the complete rights to some of the characters that they were doing comics for uh, at this point, right? Like Gold Key had a lot of licenses. Gold Key had uh, uh, the Star Trek license, for example, doing Star Trek comics. They also had a lot of the Warner Brother characters comics they had uh, roadrunner uh bugs bunny Duffy duck you know like uh, uh those guys and they didn't have the right to have ads made for those characters on behalf of warner brothers so gold key would frequently have ads from the other game for the other comic companies characters right like richie rich would appear in a bugs bunny mm. comic you know uh, even though they had, you know, they were from completely different licenses or whatever for them, they had a deal where Gold Key could reprint like ads that were done. So th in several cases, um, Gold Key would run Marvel ads, right? Like they'd have Spider-Man or the Hulk or something in a Bugs Bunny comic, which you know hmm. was a, a level crossover you didn't usually kind of like see in that time. The ads were created by a company called the Ted Bates Agency. And the Ted Bates Agency was one of the biggest food advertising companies, uh, agencies, basically, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They had actually been founded in 1940. They were one of the top five agencies in total revenue uh, in the world at the time that these came out, right? Like, so working with Ted Bates was, was, was a big deal. Um, and they were mostly known for food, right? Like, their biggest clients were you know like uh, uh restaurants or brands of food brands of candy um these are the guys who created uh the m&m melts in your mouth not in your hand ad right like i mean this is you know they, these guys were these guys were a big deal uh and so they would 
script the actual ads for the comics themselves. They would do them in-house, right? Um, and they would generally do them very broadly. They would basically just like write a paragraph uh, saying, here is what we want to have happen in this ad, right? In this ad, Captain America has to fight the Red Skull. Uh, and, you know, it's a bicentennial thing. And that's as much information as they would give, right? Uh, and then they would be uh, cleaned up, usually by in-house writers uh, in the comic company that was taking the ad in, right? Like they would come in very kind of like incomplete. Uh, and then the artist would do their full page. And then somebody else professionally within Marvel or DC or whoever would then come along and just kind of like clean up the scripts, right? And are just doing their best to explain what the panels are. Because um, the art was done right. first, right? From them. So the artists who got paid to do this themselves worked directly for the ad agency, right? Like the ad agency were the ones paying the artists bill for this. And this was considered a primo gig for the artists, right? Because this paid like half again, it was like 150% of what either Marvel or DC were paying for page rates oh, nice. at the time, right? So they would literally get paid like half again as much money to do a page for Postis than they actually got paid doing the actual monthly comic of the, you know, of, of the character that they were working on. Freedom, I guess, too, um, since there was no real guidelines on what it was like since the art was done first, yeah. Right, right. Frequently, they would wind up in the hands of whoever it was who was actually writing or was doing the art on that comic, right? But not necessarily, and especially as they went along, they kind of, you know would go to whoever happened to, you know, be free, right? Like whoever was willing to sign up for a deal. Now, the uh, so the artists got paid very well. There was no budget in the ads for any writing at all, right? There was no money that was set aside for scripters or anything like that, right? So as far as like the ad agency was concerned, they were doing the writing and this like cleanup that happened at the Marvel office or the DC office or whatever, um, was on Marvel and DC to do, right? So, and since Marvel and DC weren't getting any money for that part of it, the job of writing them would frequently go to whoever, like, the lowest paid person in the office was, right? It was, you know, it was a chore. It was like a cleanup thing. It was just like a, you know, we don't want these to go out and be wrong. We don't want to have a character do something like completely out of character in the ad or have some fact about the character be wrong. So somebody on our end needs to look at this because this was written by an ad agency, not a professional writer, right? But we're not going to pay for that. So this was some junior, you know, like editor, assistant editor's job was to like go in and like fix those up. Roger Stern has talked about uh, publicly when he was first hired at Marvel, uh, one of his first jobs was doing cleanup work on the on the ads on the hostess ads and he will totally cop to like i wrote six or eight of these you know just after hours <laughs> you know like literally i would stay late on one day and spend 20 minutes <laughs> writing them and then you know boom it would go off to production right like there was no time for this and you didn't get paid right it was just part of somebody's you know like salary job actually do this uh so you know the editors uh, since the editors at least were getting salaries they usually wound up doing the bulk of the work. Um, there was a set of rules that 
all of the companies, the Marvel and DC, and also the the Gold Key and Harvey and everybody had about how these would be done that they had worked out in their contracts with Hostess or with uh, Ted Bates, and one of them was that uh, for the superhero characters, both Marvel and DC had this policy that in a character, a superhero endorsing a product was a very valuable thing, the, the superhero company publishers thought, mm -hmm. right? And there were levels of endorsement that they would offer in their ads, right? It was one thing to, you, you would pay a certain amount of price to just have a picture of a superhero standing with your product. It was much more money to have a picture or to have a, a an advertisement in which the the superhero character is actually using your product, mm. right? That's different. That's a different level of like cash that you have to pay out, right? Like if Captain America is just going to stand next to your bicycle, that's cool. And then if Captain America is going to ride your bicycle, that's more money, right? Like that you have to pay for the rights to use Captain America for. So, as far as both Marvel and DC were concerned. You had to hostess was should pay extra to have the superheroes actually eat the the right. the Twinkie or the cupcake or the fruit pie, right? And hostess was mostly not willing to pay that. They bought all of their you know like ad rates at the next rate down of just like oh yeah we will have Captain America appear in the story, but Captain America doesn't eat the product, right? We're not paying for that extra bit <laughs> to 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 have that happen. Um, and they Marvel and DC for the most part enforced that mm -hmm. internally. Though neither Gold Key or Harvey or um, you know any anybody else that, that was doing these, uh, Archie, for example, did not care. Right? There was no difference. If you paid to have Archie in your ad, Archie would mm -hmm. eat your product, right? And they, that was the same amount of money of, as as if right. he was standing there. But Marvel and DC didn't, so they kind of like made a point of saying the superheroes never eat the product supporting cast of the superheroes can eat the product that's okay right like commissioner gordon can eat a cupcake right but batman okay. can't mary jane watson can eat a cupcake but spider-man can't right if you actually read the you know look through these and believe me i have read over 300 of these uh you know in, in preparation for this uh, for this episode the only person who ever screws this up at marvel is herb trimpey who was doing the hulk Apparently, some nobody ever told Herb that the Hulk can't eat the product because the Hulk eats the product half the time, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and there's no explanation as to how come he does and nobody else does. I think that by that point, this was just like such a background thing going on that no editor was paying attention to it at that point, or nobody ever got around telling Herb, like, dude, just don't have the Hulk eat the thing, right? Because he eats them all over the place. Speaking of the Hulk, um, he eats a he eats a fruit pie. Oh, go go ahead. Sorry. No, he eats a fruit pie in uh, in Twins of Evil, um, and he eats a cupcake in Friends. If you actually, uh, when we're going to include a link that uh, lets you go look at some of these crazy ads for it. But uh, uh, speaking of the Hulk, yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of the Hulk, we have a uh, message from him right now. Uh, Absolutely, the Incredible Hulk versus the Roller Disco Devils. <laughs> We open on a uh, on an urban scene uh, where the roller disco devils have been terrorizing and terrifying the town. 
and it is a collection of uh, like a like a gang on roller skates uh, tearing down the street with uh, boomboxes on their shoulders, and they are dressed in the most wonderful, outrageous uh, uh, outfits, and they're playing their music really loud and just kind of like terrorizing the town. People looking, uh, children looking down on them from uh, apartment to window. Well, things are really bad. Yeah, our moms won't let us out of the house. We can't even buy some Hostess fruit pies. Someone else is very upset by the devil. By the devil. By the devils. And then suddenly leaping over a building, we see the Incredible Hulk. Hulk not like loud noise. He lands on the street and then picks up a chunk of the street and begins to roll up the street uh, like backwards over the roller skating villains. You like to roll? Okay, roll. And literally, he crushes all of them pretty much to death. That's the most horrible uh, uh, and disgusting and violent sequence I've seen in a comic book since Frank Miller. Uh. Now she's safe and quiet, says Hulk, who is now sitting on top of a pile of, like, you know, like, street rubble, from which two very sad roller skates are just kind of, like, projecting, showing the incredibly crushed body of the, uh, of, of the gangsters underneath. Yay! Now we can all get all the hostess fruit pies we want. Thanks, Hulk, says the children as they look at the crushed, mangled corpses of the roller gang. I like the real real fruit filling. Mmm, apple, cherry, peach. Wow, that's great crust. The Hulk uh, is uh, watching the kids enjoy them. Why can't all humans be nice like hosted fruit pies? As they consume their pies. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. All right. Thank you, Hulk. Thank you, Hulk. <laughs> uh, so uh, where were we at, Darren? Uh, so we were talking about the, uh, the, the people who actually wound up doing this, right? Uh, DC In the DC offices, one of the most prolific writers of these ads was a guy named Bob Rosakis. And Bob Rosakis was uh, an editor and a sometimes writer, was a staff person for DC throughout the, from like the late 60s into the 80s. Um, and he wrote a lot of the kids stuff at DC, right? Like he wrote the Super Friends comic and he wrote a bunch of, he wrote the, uh, the, the, the happy, uh, you know, friendly Shazam Captain Marvel when, uh, you know, when Shazam was on Saturday mornings and that kind of thing. Um, and he wrote six or seven of these at least and has talked about it again, you know, like in his own, uh, you know, biography basically, where he talks about how the, the schedule of the characters would be worked out in advance by somebody at DC with the uh, office managers from, from Ted Bates at DC. That was Saul Harrison mostly, who was the vice, the vice president of operations. Saul Harrison had himself been a colorist for DC dating all the way back to before DC when he was with all American back, you know, back in the forties. And so the writers and artists would basically just get a character request with like a two line, uh, you know, description of what it was they wanted. Uh, the same basic deal was done at Marvel where it was the Marvel production manager, uh, Saul Brodsky, uh, who oversaw, he was kind of like the office manager for Stan Lee, once again, dating back forever, was an, was an old guy by this point. Um, Saul Brodsky was, the, was an artist sometimes and an inker, but most of his job was working with advertisers and working with printers. And so they were kind of the ones actually kind of working out the deal for each episode with the Ted Bates agency. So a lot of these pieces are done by um, 
notable individual artists uh, who, you know, like would go on frequently to be more famous. Um, kind of the most notable one, and the one that frankly it kind of like surprises me is not actually collectible, but kind of could be, um, is that Frank Miller actually did one of these in the very earliest days that he was at Marvel. Um, huh. He kind of like picked up an assignment, uh, you know, before anybody knew who he was when he was, you know, like knocking out some early, uh, you know, Spider-Man stories and before da before Daredevil took off. And he was handed one of these uh, descriptions of a character uh, that was going to be uh, literally the only write-up that it had was it's it, this one's going to be for the Human Torch and the Human Torch should fight some ice guy. And then like that's all the description had, right? So Frank changed the name of the character. And drew this, you know, kind of like fiendish looking bad guy from first appearing in a hostess ad to later becoming an actual Marvel character, right? Like he, he, he moved from like the, the, the Earth hostess universe, basically, uh, to appear in the 616 Marvel setting. Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley were doing Thunderbolts, and they were creating a team, a new version of the Masters of Evil uh, to fight the Thunderbolts for some reason. And Busiek, created a clay or you know like found a collection of just like some of the goofiest villains that marvel had ever published and put them together as this like kind of you know like comical team so that they could get clobbered by the heroes the heroes quote unquote because it's the thunderbolts um and in the letters pages of the comics he challenged he put up a contest saying if you can find the first appearance of each of these characters. The first person to send me a list of the first issue in which all of these ridiculous characters appear will get a prize, will get a no prize or something, right? And we made famous on our comment on our letters page, et cetera. And the 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 you know the hardest one was the Ice Master, who like appeared on this team. Like you had to not only you had to know like what comic book his ad had appeared in, you know, that he was a hostess character originally, right? Like then come over. Um, and so he was like the ringer in the trivia game, right? Like if you could like figure that one out, then the rest of them were going to be easy for you. Uh, and so Ice Master kind of like officially became part of the Marvel universe. And he's now kind of an in-joke over at Marvel hmm. as he appears on a pretty regular basis now to get absolutely thumped by some superhero, right? Like he's never come close to winning a fight ever in the history of Marvel. And he's probably appeared six or eight times since then. Um, and he gets clobbered every time. So he was in Civil War for a bit and just got trashed. So I remember that. Yeah. yeah. With him being a Frank Miller character, hopefully uh, Miller comes back and we can watch him do uh, heroin or something. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the Dark Ice Master <laughs> story of something, right. I'm sure he has a really unpleasant origin or something that like somebody should reveal. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think Miller gets any money for uh, you know, for for creating him though. So it's he didn't have a uh, you know, a, a work for hire contract. <laughs> so a lot of people wind up if you if you go through the 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 ads themselves are never in fact actually uh, signed, right? You have to kind of know uh, just by art style who has done these. Some of them you can tell. Some of them they are clearly working to be like as bland as possible. Um, the bulk of the DC ones were done by one of two or three guys, Kurt Swan, who is one of the legendary, you know, Superman artists from the fifties and sixties did a lot of them. Tex Blaisdell did several of them. Jim Mooney did a bunch of them. The thing that they all kind of had in common is most of the time you can tell that Dick Giordano 
who was the executive vice president and then the president of the company inked a lot of them. Um, you know, kind of like coming along after the fact to clean those up. And uh, so DC's stuff, like they only paid, I mean, they paid the penciler uh, for it for, you know, time and a half, the page and a half rate for doing just the penciling. And then Giordano would get paid page and a half rate to do all of the inking. And frankly, that was, you know, like a pretty, he thought that was a pretty good deal. He'd do those all day long. Um, most of the Marvel ones were inked by the penciler themselves. They, they got both fees basically for doing them. Um, there, I guess there was no, you know, inker with any authority over at Marvel who had the right to just kind of like come in and swipe up these easy jobs basically. Um, so between those three doing kind of like most of the penciling and Giordano doing most of the, of the, of the inking for them, the DC pieces all kind of have a, a consistent look right? Like a, a long line because Blaisdell and Mooney both definitely learned art from people like Kurt Swan, right? Like their style definitely looks uh, like it comes from the fifties or sixties. And so the DC stuff is much less stylized. It's much more kind of like mannered and it looks like an old timey comic. Marvel would give them literally to whoever happened to be around in the office at the time, or, you know, who kind of like made a request for them. Um, and like I said, the, the, the artists were happy to do them because it was good pay, but none of them were so happy to do it that they'd like stand in line for it. Right. It was just kind of like a, Hey, who's free, who can do this, you know, this month. Um, Sal Basima does probably more than anybody else's. Uh, and, uh, Mary Severin does a bunch of them. Herb Trimpey does a bunch of them. Earl Kupperberg uh, did a few before he stopped being a penciler entirely. And Vince Coletta um, did some actually on his own. Now, Vince Coletta is more famous at Marvel for being an inker, but he also was occasionally a penciler. Um, and there's definitely a few of the Marvel ones that are done by Vince just by himself. Uh, Gil Kane, who is one of the all-time greatest artists for both Marvel and DC, once again, from the 50s, well into the 70s and 80s, um, does, did two uh, of these. He did one Daredevil and one of uh, Captain Marvel, actually, which is kind of amazing. I think it's the only time the Kane had like taken a shot at that. Uh, Ross Andrew does the first Spider-Man one and then never did one again. And he was, uh, he was the artist on Spider-Man at the time that these were getting published. Uh, Neil Adams did the June 1977 Green Lantern ad, which is called Half the People Here, and in which a villain has basically put half of everybody into like another dimension, right? So all of the people are like split in half and like only the left side of them is appearing. And then they have just kind of like a blank outline of like the other halves of their bodies. And, you know, Green Lantern has to come in and save the day. And it's just, it's very creepy looking and it's a very... Uh, identifiable Neil Adams piece, right? Like it doesn't, nobody else, no other artist could do the kind of stuff that he was doing. Uh, Dave Cockrum did a Hulk one. Gene Colan did a Thor one called The False Immortal with uh, Jack Abel doing uh, the inking on it. Don Heck did a few. Keith Pollard did an Iron Man. So, I mean, if you're a fan of like specific artists, if you're a fan of Marvel artists from... The, say the late 60s to the early 1980s, many of your favorites are in here, you know, to actually do some of them. Um, Harvey had kind of like a similar situation where uh, the whoever was the regular artist uh, on the title 
would do the ad pretty much straight up, you know, um, and there was both Harvey in particular had a house style, right? Like Warren Kremer was the guy who created both Richie Rich and Casper, uh, or, you know, like did the modern versions of them, at least he didn't actually create Casper, but he's, uh, uh, the version of Casper that you know is done by him. Um, and anybody else who was working in-house was pretty much under orders to make it look as much like Kremer's art as possible, right? Like you were expected to copy his stuff. Um, and But so we're not 100% certain that Kremer did all of the Harvey ones, but he probably did. They're all, if they, if he, if they weren't done by him, they were done by somebody doing an amazingly good job of mimicking him. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in these as a collector, if you're interested in these as a as a fan of specific artists, um, you can, you know, check out uh, uh, the the individual ones that, you know, some of your art heroes ever did. So. Yeah. Well, um, I think with that, uh, we have one last um, we have one last word from our sponsor from our sponsor. So that'll uh, that'll go off after uh, we say bye. Uh, thank you so much for joining us with uh, Explain That Hostess, guys. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Thor and the Ding-a-Ling family. By some mysterious quirk of space and time warp, the Ding-a-Ling family is thrust into Thor's Asgardian orbit. And uh, the the panel here shows uh, what appears to be some sort of like a RV, I think, or something, uh, with a bunch of hillbillies with machine guns, kind of like leaping out of it in space towards uh, Thor and uh, his pretty much entire supporting cast, who are on a boat in space. The family leaves a trail of evil doing on Earth. Grandma Dingling leads them in swooping silently up behind the Asgardians. Grandma Dingling yells at her kin. Let's get them all, Ken. Capture them, or, or Ding-a-Ling's not our Ding-a-Ling name. We know not what provoketh thee, strange family, but if thou dost come amongst us with unpleasantness in thy hearts, with unpleasantness thou shalt be met, and then some. By cracky that purty yellow-haired fella's the leader. Let's hornswoggle him, and the rest will be a piece of cake, uh, says uh, Grandma, and in response... Uh, one of them pointing a shotgun at Thor. Okay, pa, ma, auntie, sister, brother, cousins, be and by, and grandma, all you dingalings, hold him still, so I can get a bead on him with my atomic shotgun. Thor begins laying about uh, with his hammer, smashing all of the assorted dingalings, but he is unable to escape the grasp. Thy familial bonds are indeed strong. Pity tis misspent on evil. But tis not before the fierce power of the mystic mallet Mjolnir. But what's this? The cousins they calleth thee and by resisteth the hammer. Uh, the smallest dingling is on uh, Thor's back, uh, choking him. Hee hee haw, cousin by. I think we got him. Another dingling says. Show enough, cousin B. It's our cousin's power secret weapon. Nothing can resist it except when our heads wander a bit and we lose concentration and we goof it up ourselves. Sif overhears this discussion and, uh, you know, runs in to join the fight carrying a platter of uh, hostess fruit pies. I then, tis but child's play to use this ploy and distract the cousins be and by, and by and by it will be their undoing. Er, uh, I, mm, mm, look at that cousin by. 
her cousin B. What were we saying? Oh, look at that delicious hostess fruit pies, apple and cherry. Going into the next panel, even. Great light, tender crust, real fruit filling. Cousin Bai, I can't recollect what we were talking about, uh, but it couldn't be half as interesting as these mouth-watering hostess fruit pies. You fools, we almost had the yellow-haired one in our power. Dumb cousins, exclaimed Grandma. <laughs> Shaking her fists at the sky. Yeah. <laughs> Forsooth, milady, not so dumb. They knoweth of yon delicious snack. Now, home to Odin. Be sure to save some hostess fruit pies for that great one to enjoy, too. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. All right, cool. I think that's a fine place to end. <laughs> I think it is.